0: There was an ancient people group who found themselves in a precarious situation. Their leader was dead. Their people, refugees, young, old men, women, and children, were tired from years of travel. And before them was a river separating them from some of the most hostile lands on the planet. 31 hostile empires, to be exact. 31. And it is said that in those lands, across the river, were giants. But this people group, tired and diverse as they were, had no choice but to move forward if they were to find rest. So against all odds, they came together, forged an army, and overcame all 31 kings to carve out one of history's great ancient empires. And you can read all about their military exploits today in one of history's most famous religious texts, the book of Joshua found in the Hebrew Old Testament. As to their resolve, you'll read there on page one of that book, of their God, who said to them, Arise, go over the river Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to you, the people of Israel. No man shall be able to stand before you in the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I am with you, Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Arise, be strong, stand. That is what the Apostle Paul is instructing us to do here in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 as we begin to wrap up our series that we have titled Sit, Walk, Stand. If you've been with us uh, over these past months here at Calvary Chapel, you know what these bodily movements are all about. Ephesians one to three, we sit in the truths, the spiritual blessings of our redemption in Christ. The city is all about our identity. It's about who we are as God's people, the church, the called out ones, or the ecclesia. Ephesians four six through Ephesians four through to six nine is all about our walk, is how we walk out those truths of our redemption in Christ in all areas of life, you know, children, parents, husbands, wives, slaves, masters. The walk is all about our conduct or what we are to do in light of the fact that we are the church. And now here in Ephesians 6.10 through to the end of the chapter in verse 24, we see what we are called to do in the final, namely stand fast as God's people. The standing is all about our resolve or where we are sitting and walking and where that's all going to take us as God's people. Who we are to stand for, who we are to withstand or stand against, namely the forces of darkness. So three bodily movements, sit, walk, stand, Three facets of the Christian life, identity, conduct, resolve. Three tenses, the the who, the what, and the where. And what a journey it's been over these last couple of months, hasn't it, here in the book of Ephesians. I have just loved this study, and I think it's been really timely for us as a local church here in Newcastle as well, given everything that we've been going through. Uh, But, you know, speaking personally for me, It's been really interesting. I mean, we didn't plan this when it came time to, you know, doing the roster or anything, but it just so happens that I've had the personal privilege to introduce each one of these new bodily movements of sitting and walking, and now today standing as we're going to begin to look at that in Ephesians 6.10. And I'll go through to the end of uh, verse 18 here, and Mick will wrap it up next week. So if you have Ephesians 6 before you in a Bible or an app, get there now. And as you do, I just want to outline, I guess, the the overview for today. I've I've titled this talk, Onward Christian Soldier. Some of you may be familiar with the 19th century English hymn with that title. If you're not, you certainly will be by the end of today's message. Uh, And on the screen, you're going to see four points by way of outline. Number one, we stand as soldiers of God. Number two, we stand in the strength of the Lord. Number three, we stand against the schemes of the devil. And fourth, we stand in the whole armour of God. So let's get on with it. Hey, we first stand as soldiers of God. Paul begins here in verse 10, "...finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might." Just as the word therefore in Ephesians 4.1 marked a transition from sitting to walking, so this word finally in Ephesians 6.10 makes a transition from walking to standing. Paul is here finishing his letter. This is like an awesome conclusion to a great essay. (laughs) He's tying off all of the doctrinal points and points of practical application together. And in a sense, he's really continuing this call for you and I to walk out. But the distinctive here is that the struggle or the walk that we are to walk out, it's not between people, you know, our relationships with each other in the church or at home with family or at work with slaves and masters, as Dave spoke to us about last week. The instruction here is about a struggle between believers and spiritual forces. And it is against spiritual forces that Paul says we are to stand. But why this instruction to be strong here? Well, think back to Joshua. You know, you don't give an exhortation like be strong and courageous unless there were real threats, you know, real hostile enemies, real giants in the land before you. Sons and daughters of Israel, be strong and courageous for the goal set before you. You were once held in bondage in Egypt, in chains and shackles, but you have been set free by the Lord. You have been redeemed by the Lord. You've been called out to walk in covenant and in community by the Lord, not without purpose, but with a promise that this land before you is a land that I have for you, declares the Lord. So be strong and courageous. Church of Jesus Christ today, you have been set free from bondage. You have been called out of darkness into the light. You have been redeemed for the purposes of God to walk in covenant and in community with a promise that he will enable you to stand and withstand to the very end. So be strong. You need to be because there are enemies, there are hostile forces on the terrain in which we live and move and have our being as God's people in this dispensation of the church as aliens and strangers, as ambassadors for Christ in a foreign land. This well-known passage here in Ephesians 6, it it, it characterises the Christian life as one of soldiering. This tells us immediately that life is not a sandbox. Whether you like it or not, we are at war. And look, I, I understand that Some people might find that disconcerting. You know, battle imagery, it's not everyone's cup of tea, and and especially not today when we have such knowledge of the abuses of the church as it relates to religious wars in human history. So I do get that, and I am sensitive to that myself. Perhaps that's why in God's wisdom we have other images in the New Testament for Christians that characterize the Christian life, like, you know, builders and farmers and athletes. But inasmuch as building and farming and, and athleticism are all... Uh, descriptions or images of the Christian life, so too is soldiering. And Paul knew this all too well. Remember, he was in prison, likely guarded by Roman soldiers who perhaps inspired the imagery here in Ephesians 6, Uh, that as well as the fact that there are many Old Testament references to the armour that we're going to explore today. The church is locked in battle. We are called to be soldiers because we are in enemy territory. And we are to move by faith in the promises of God. We are to stand against enemies, against giants, and we are to incline our ear to the voice of our commander and chief. Did you know that Jesus in the New Testament is the name for Joshua? Yeshua. He knows the battle plans, the insights into the schemes of the enemy, and he instructs us accordingly to stand firm and at times to take the fight to the enemy with weapons that are not of flesh, but with weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. But again, why? I mean, hasn't Paul been telling us all along that Jesus has the victory? Yeah, we saw that very clearly. Ephesians 1, the victory is secured. It is guaranteed. But David was anointed king of Israel by Samuel, and it wasn't until years later that he ascended the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ has broken the power of evil and delivered us from the bondage of death in the first century, but it has been and may yet be years until he ascends that throne in Jerusalem. So the provision is complete, but the providence is yet to be fully realized or consummated in history. Think of it like this. It's, it's like the arrival of the Allied forces to the aid of Britain in World War II, In that moment of that arrival, the tide turned against the axis of evil, and yet there was very real, very bloody, very intense, very brutal fighting to the finish for those soldiers. So victorious in Christ as we are, God's kingdom purposes are not yet complete, and that is why we are called to arise, church, and to stand firm. You know, today we talk about people falling from grace and sadly this past decade we've seen that time and again as people in positions of influence and leadership within the church have fallen. Well, this passage here is all about how the Lord equips us to remain upright. It's not a passage about fighting for our salvation. Remember, Ephesians was written to saints in Asia Minor, believers who sit, who walk and now who stand as soldiers of God. Ephesians 6 is not an image of Christians warring against evil to keep themselves saved. It is an image of war against evil because we are saved. That's why there is opposition here, because we are saints. We are faithful in Christ. And if the world hates you, saint, know that it hated me before you, says Jesus in John 15. Walk as children of light, saint, knowing that darkness hates the light, John 3. It is precisely because of where we sit in Christ and how we walk in the way of Christ that Paul now exhorts us to stand firm in Christ, because our identity and our conduct as God's people will draw opposition from the forces of darkness who will oppose us, who will accuse us, and who will condemn those of us who march under the colours of Christ our King. So onward, Christian soldiers, march as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward in a battle, see his banners go. We stand as soldiers of God. Second, we stand in the strength of the Lord. Verse 10 again, finally, be strong in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of his might. This instruction here, uh, to be strong, it, it's, it's passive. This is not us flexing our own muscle in the mirror of our own egos. We don't do this. You know, The church is a people who are strengthened by another, who lean upon another, who stand to withstand opposition in the strength of another, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here in this conclusion, Paul is effectively taking us back to where we began in chapter 1 with that call to understand the resurrection of, of Jesus himself, that resurrection power of God that is available to us. We have the same power that removed the stone of Christ himself. That is what strengthens us. That is what empowers us as God's people. It's yours. You are strengthened, so be strong. I mean, that's really been the sub-theme of this whole book, hasn't it? Paul has been effectively saying here in Ephesians time and again, this is who you are, church, so be who you are. You are strong in the Lord, so be strong in the Lord. Now, just prefatory point here. I think it's really important what this does for us in terms of our theology of spiritual warfare Broadly, and I mean very broadly, we tend to see two opposite and extreme reactions within the global church when it comes to spiritual warfare. On the one hand, uh, there are those who feel it is their role to, you know, go demon hunting uh, and slaying spirits in the name of Jesus and looking behind every rock or tree for somebody to slay. On the other hand, usually in reaction to that, are those who sit passively and say, Jesus has won, this whole idea of spiritual warfare is a bit crazy, I don't want a part of it, it doesn't seem right to me, so let us agree in principle about spiritual forces, but uh, you can keep your practice to yourself. (laughs) Well, I think both are inherently misguided because I think both reflect something of a biblical ignorance and a settledness in the strength of men, not the God-man Jesus Christ. Again, this is the climactic conclusion to a very dramatic letter here. Paul is preaching the high point of his exhortation to the Ephesians and he's saying, be strong in the Lord because the battle is raging and if we are to be found faithful and of any use to God in his kingdom, we need the strength of our commander-in-chief. But here's the thing with that. Remember the stories of... Uh, World War II, and and the propaganda luring young boys with the promise of a great adventure, with the opportunity to become heroes for king and country, to answer the call and fight for the homeland, for their families, for their loved ones. And one by one, our boys enlisted with the excitement at the prospect of beating down an enemy with their mates and their brothers in arms, fighting in foxholes, and all the red-blooded hoorah that goes along with that. But the reality we know, was that for a great many of those boys, our boys, no sooner had they arrived than they witnessed their mates being blown to pieces. And they themselves found themselves face down in the mud, screaming for mum and dad and the quiet of home they'd left behind. Please don't mishear me, there is victory in warfare that is to be celebrated. But the fight itself is never pretty. It's dirty. It's bloody. It's brutal. It doesn't feel good. Heroism comes with great sacrifice, with great cost. And that's where we are today, by the way, as a church, carrying our cross. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, says Paul to Rome. But here's the thing, sacrifices don't live. We are walking dead people. The reality of spiritual warfare ought to be sobering. It ought to humble us. It ought to cause us to flee and to shelter in the strength of our Lord, not to be brazen and bold and flip a stone and turn a tree and find a demon and think we can slay it. I mean, even Michael the archangel, you know, concerning the death of Moses, didn't want a war with Satan over the body. Who do we think we are? Do not be afraid or discouraged because the battle belongs to the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Fear not, for I am with you. I will help you. I will uphold you, says the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Do not repay evil for evil, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And all God's people said, Are you serious? Like, are you sure? Now you'll repay in a little bit. Did you remember? Did you forget, Lord God? Or do you want me to take care of that one for you? The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent and all God's people inevitably said something. You see, this is the double-edged sword when it comes to spiritual warfare. To be strong in the Lord is to renounce your own strength That natural tendency that pulls you in the direction of wanting to do things in our own strength as though the providence of God were a cute theory to talk about around a coffee table and not the reality in which we live and move and have our being. So as the church, we can declare and we should declare yes and amen to the promises of God, to the victories of God in Christ Jesus. But that declaration entails putting to death the tendency of our old nature to flex its muscle in an attempt to do in the flesh what Jesus has already done on the cross there is no victory without the strength of the lord there is no power to stand and withstand apart from the strength of the lord so friend if you're struggling now let me ask you whose strength are you struggling in do you know what it is to be strong in the lord to fight as his soldier When you find yourself in that place, in that space, that smell, that memory, that trigger. What is your weapon? How will you wield it? When that person talks to you and sets you off in a certain way, will you recognize the warfare that you're engaged in? That is what this chapter here is all about. And just as the Lord charged the people of Israel to be strong and courageous because of their, you know, chariots, their horses, their swords. No, be strong and courageous because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Just as they were charged to be strong and courageous because of the presence of the Lord. So you and I, the church, have a Yeshua and we too are to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might because that is where we are in the Christ. And it takes faith to be here, to believe that Christ can hold us up, especially when we're deep in enemy territory, all alone fighting the fight where it is fierce. It takes faith to stand. And you know, we're not downloaded with some amazing degree of faith in the Lord the moment we become Christians. This is something that we grow in. The Christian life is organic. It's characterized as a new birth, and people who are born tend to grow to maturity. In uh, Bible study, we've been going through the Bible, and, and we've just finished the patriarchs. And, you know, Abraham there, he, he was not perfect by any means. But he wasn't the same person in Genesis 25 when the Lord closed his eyes in death as he was in Genesis 12 when the Lord, the Lord called him out from Haran. As imperfect as he was, Abraham's faith in the Lord grew through the trials and tribulations, the battles and skirmishes of his Life. That's why it's now said of Abraham, Romans 4.20, that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's the end game here, by the way. Peter says, whoever serves, serves by the strength that God supplies so that in everything, everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God. That is why we sit. That is why we walk. That is why we stand. At the name of Jesus, Satan's host doth flee. On then Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, sisters, lift your voices. Let your anthems raise. We stand as soldiers of God. We stand in the strength of the Lord. Thirdly, we stand against the schemes of the devil. Clearly, if we are soldiers, you know, if we're in this desperate need of the Lord's strength, it's because we have an enemy, giants in the land before us. So we read verse 11, Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Here's the point. We do not fight in the flesh because it's not the flesh that we fight. That's why we need the strength of the Lord. But let's think critically about this text for a moment. Is Paul saying here that flesh and blood have nothing to do with our struggles as Christians? No, he's already told us back in Ephesians four fourteen and following that we struggle against human cunning and deceitful schemes. In fact, that's the only other place in the entire New Testament that we find this word schemes in connection to human beings. So clearly there is a relationship here between flesh and blood and the schemes of the devil. But by saying here in chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, I think Paul is saying more, not less, than what he's already told us back in chapter 4. The reality is that there is more to our struggles against flesh and blood than what we see, more than just the physical in any given situation. And we know this, first of all, because of our own testimony as saints as the called out ones, the church, don't we? I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, there is a prince of the power of the air, a spirit of this age at work in the passions of the flesh in which we once walked. The deceitful schemes of the devil are manifest in and through the flesh. That is what our testimony bears witness to. But Paul's emphasis here uh, on the spiritual forces in chapter 6, rather than on the material circumstances, I think it helps us to see like a strategic wartime advantage, that at every moment of flesh and blood realities, there are larger cosmic spiritual realities at play. There are schemes of the devil, verse 11. In the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, verse 12. But what does that look like? Well, we know from John 8, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan is a liar. And we know from 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 that he disguises himself as an angel of light. So the devil is a liar and he deceives with his lies. What this tells us is that the devil can have real Power and influence in human affairs, power that can influence even God's people to believe things that aren't true. The Apostle Paul himself said that when he came into Macedonia, his body had no rest because he was afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 2 Corinthians 7:5. If you want a really interesting insight into this spiritual reality or the spiritual domain behind the veneer of Physicality. Then have a read of Daniel chapter 10. Daniel prays, and then three weeks later, an angel appears to say, I heard your prayer 21 days ago, but I was engaged in war with the Prince of Persia. It's fascinating. Yes, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, 1 John 4. But John gives that instruction within the context of calling God's people to be discerning. So do not sit on the couch, church, as it concerns spiritual warfare, and certainly do not go turning over rocks and looking behind trees to find a demon to slay. 1 Peter 5.8, Be watchful, for our adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, the schemes of the devil are lies and deception. And it looks like what happened in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Every sin of my own, or every sin that I've reflected on in the lives of other people, they really can come back to what we see in Genesis 3 1 to 8. A questioning of God's word Did God really say? A questioning of who we are You know, you will not surely die. A questioning of the creation we find ourselves in. The fruit was pleasing to the eye. A question of the nature of our creator himself. For God knows that when you eat, you will become like him. And now east of Eden today in the 21st century, I think one of gre- Satan's greatest schemes is discouragement. That can present in many different ways for us. You know, Anxiety, worry, depression, anger, shame. For me personally, oftentimes it's, the confusion between conviction and condemnation. In fact, everything that we've been urged to walk in from Ephesians chapter 4 1 and following is designed to prevent the devil's success in getting a foothold in the Christian life. That suggests, therefore, that he can. So we must resist, yet not I, but through Christ in me, in his strength. So if you want to name it and claim it theology. <laughs> okay. I'm going to get in trouble here. If you want to name it and claim it's theology, here it is. Name Christ and claim Christ, for He has named you and claimed you. And as you do that, as you do that against the forces of darkness, rejoice in Him Always, and let's just say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone that the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace which surpasses all understanding of our Lord will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus, who, oh, by the way, Colossians two fifteen, has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Himself. So stand your ground, Christian soldier. You can, for it is the very ground already claimed by God's anointed King, Jesus. Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan in faith, for what was purchased for them by God with a promise. Jesus, our Yeshua, has called us across the Jordan in faith for what he has purchased with the promise of his resurrection that holds out hope in the newness of a dawn beyond the empty tomb for each one of us. Even when we die, we win because he is bringing us into our inheritance across that proverbial Jordan and no power of hell, death or the grave can stand against it. So like a mighty army moves the church of God, brothers, sisters, we are treading where the saints of old have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in faith, one in spirit, one eternally. We stand as soldiers of God. We stand in the strength of the Lord. We stand against the schemes of the devil. Fourthly, finally, we stand in the whole armour of God. Here in verses uh, 14 through 18, Paul mentions six pieces of physical armor, and each one corresponds to certain spiritual realities, realities which, if you uh, survey the rest of uh, Ephesians as a whole, are mentioned in detail. Essentially, again, this is a great conclusion to an essay. He's tying off so many of the rich truths he's already presented for us in the body of the letter. And now he says here that we are to stand in these Pieces of armor, these spiritual realities as soldiers in the army of God. Six pieces a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, shoes on our feet in readiness to preach the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, before we get into those, I just want you to notice something briefly in verse 11 and verse 13 as it relates to all six pieces of armor. In verse 11, Paul tells us to put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand in the strength of the Lord. In verse 13, Paul says, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. Now, the content of these instructions is basically the same, but there are slight different emphases worth drawing out. In verse 11, Paul is talking in the positive sense of our standing in the strength of the Lord. And the word he uses for put on here, it's the same word he used back in Ephesians 4, to 24 where he told us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. That metaphor there was like putting off and putting on clothes. And the idea is passive in the sense of, you know, somebody holding out a dressing gown or a garment for you and you just sink into it. So we put on or, or sink into what is held out for us. And that makes sense, again, of the nature of our salvation, which is a divine initiative of the triune God of salvation from eternity to eternity, week one. Ephesians 2, we learnt, "...for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." So the instruction here to put on the whole armour of God, like we put on the new self, it seems to be a statement of identity for Christians. Be who you are, strong in the Lord, which means wear the whole armour of God. That's how you're made strong in the Lord, by the way. Then in verse 13, Paul is talking in the negative sense of our standing against the devil. And the word he uses here for take up is different to what he had in verse 11 with put on. It literally means to raise up, to take on board, to receive what is given, like a tool in your hand. In other words, as it relates to the whole armour of God, Paul seems to be telling us two things. One, we sit in these realities. This is who we are. And two, we walk in these realities. This is what you are to do. We stand in the realities that we sit and we walk. Not some of them, all of them. All of these pieces of armor, all six work together. I mean, armor protects, right? That's what, it, that's what it does. If you have a chink or a gap in your armor, you're left exposed and the enemy will exploit that weakness. Make no mistake about it. It's no good to have a breastplate when you can have a death blow uh, to your head with an axe. <laughs> so now as we finish this off, what I want you to do with me is reflect on each one of these pieces of armor through our identity and through our conduct as God's people. Realities that we sit in and realities that we walk in. First, fasten the belt of truth, verse 14a. If lies and deception are the schemes of the devil, then what do you think we should combat those with? The truth Christian, you are in Christ. Christ is the truth, therefore you are in the truth. So fasten that belt of truth around your waist. It's the clothing that holds all of your tools together, you know. You can predicate truth of every piece of this armour. True righteousness, true peace, true faith, true salvation, true word. And the enemy cannot withstand the truth any more than darkness can withstand the rising sun. And guess what? 2 Corinthians 4.6 God who said let the light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that is how we stand in this present evil age god opens our eyes to see the glory of god in christ jesus and we've seen this all of the way through the book of ephesians by the way i mean check this out this blew my mind when i was in the study we sit in the light ephesians 1:18 39 we walk in the light, Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. And now we are called to stand in the light inasmuch as as we are called to withstand this present darkness, Ephesians 6, 12. We are a people of the truth, so may we worship in spirit and truth. Use truth like a weapon to cut and kill and pierce the lies of the enemies. Oh, be utterly dependable. In everything you do, be utterly reliable. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Second, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14b. We, the church, are a people who are made right by the precious blood of the Lamb. Own it. Did you know that Christians are not called sinners anywhere in the New Testament? Oh, we sin. <laughs> but we sin as saints. Sinners is a a statement of identity, and Paul never uses it. He calls us saints, and we do sin, but he, he pulls that out for us in instruction to say, this action is in conflict with your nature, saint. You have the power to say no, you are one of Christ, you are in Christ. That is your nature, that is your new birth, these are your new clothes, this is the armour in which you wear. So own it and stand strong in it. And when the enemy comes, you wear it like a breastplate and you act rightly. Romans 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Third, shod your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, verse 15. The church are recipients of the good news of the gospel. We of all people know how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We know this, church, so go therefore and preach The gospel to every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and know that our Lord Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. Listen, you know, Ephesians, it has been a mind blowing book. The doctrine is so high and holy, so rich and lavish. And the practical extension in our walk is so challenging and cutting to the quick of our everyday grind. But more than just the predestination, more than just the election, just more than just you know the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the adoption as a son or a daughter of God into the household of God, you and I are commissioned to represent Jesus, to bear His name, the very image of who He is, to fly the colours of Christ in the foreign lands we find ourselves in, whether that's at home or in the places and spaces and of our inhabitation or workplaces. And if that were not enough... Get this, it, it, it is so condescending on part of our Lord. He takes your body and He comes in and He makes it His home, His temple. He takes your hands and He makes them His hands. So now that you can do the works He has prepared in advance for you to do, He takes your feet and makes them His feet so that you move into places that He wants you to be by His providence. Your eyes become open to the realities of His kingdom purposes in the world around you. He takes your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and it begins to beat for the things of God in every attitude, in every thought, in every behaviour, in every word that comes out of your mouth in every moment of every day. And we go into this world as ambassadors for Christ, like loosed slaves of Egypt, through a land filled with giants. Like a little shepherd boy named David before a Philistine giant. Like fluffy little lambs to to, to dens of lions. And we go out, bold and absurd as it may seem to some, with the claim that we have the victory, even if we die. It pleases God to mock the wisdom of of the world through fluffy little lambs and foolish people. That is the gospel. It it trounces all the power of hell, demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God in that there is strength in weakness, salvation and good news in a common criminal crucified on a cross. In death there is life, and in the paradox of the blood of the cross and the wrath and the vengeance of God, there is peace and atonement and restoration with the empty tomb. This is good news, friends. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I am not ashamed of it, despite the laughter I get in my life, and neither should you. So put on your shoes and let's do this together. Fourth, take up the shield to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 16. We are a people of faith. We are a believing people in the promises of God, in the forgiveness of God, in the power of God, in the residence of God in us, in the strength of the Lord that he will keep us standing until the end. Therefore, take up your faith, church, like a shield and fend off any lies to the contrary. You know, this idea of flaming arrows in Roman uh, times, the enemies shot flaming arrows. And it was more not because they could necessarily pierced the Romans, but it was more a psychological thing. And so you may have flaming arrows that come to you in your thought life that you just didn't know where they came from. Again, that that smell, that memory, that trigger for an addiction, a stronghold in our lives. Are you going to hold up your shield of faith and deflect it? And again, for the Romans, they didn't just stand there individually in isolation and hold up their shields. They got together, lock in shoulder, and held their shields up and created like a a shell around the whole troop. That's why we must never give up meeting with one another, friends, because it is hard to fight in our own strength, and the Lord in his providence has given us a body of believers to walk through life with along the narrow way. You remember that conversation between Frodo and Gandalf in The Fellowship of the Ring? Tolkien was just a genius with his, his words. He, Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Church, that decision for you and I in the moments that we don't necessarily choose in life, that decision is one of faith. The schemes of the devil will likely attack you when you're doing great, by the way. has a tendency to do that when you think that everything is okay. The highs and the lows, we must be ready with our shield of faith to not let the flaming arrows of the enemy dig in Like a foothold in our lives with an opportunity of secrecy and corruption in the flesh and addiction and a falling of us as soldiers in the army of God. Believe the Lord when he says, Vengeance is mine, and do not go to beg angry, lest that arrow burns you from the inside. Fifth, Take the helmet of salvation, verse 17a. We are a redeemed people by the grace of God through faith. We are saved. Therefore, take up your helmet of salvation. Be strong and courageous and declare to the enemy, Not today, not today, Satan. Today, this day, I choose whom I will serve. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No power of hell, no scheme of man, no giant Philistine from a clan will ever pluck me from his hand, because in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that is why we declare that line of neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights nor depths nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord amen sixth and finally take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of god verse 17b here we find the one offensive weapon in the arsenal of god and it is his word In the desert, Jesus was tempted by the devil who promised him the world. And every time he came at the devil with, It is written, it is written, it is written. Are you better than your Lord in spiritual warfare? Do you know how to wield the word? The word which cannot be broken, which is everlasting. Do you know what it is to wield the word? Do you know what is written? Have you learnt it? Or is it in your sheath? Do you love it, or is it a burden? If we understood that the sword is a weapon, friends, it would not have any home in our sheath. It would be something in our hands at every moment of every day. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that begins with our own thought life. So why Paul says here, verse 18a, that in taking up the word, we are to pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. This is the breath of the Christian soldier. The sword and the breath, scripture and prayer, word from God, word to God. This is the attitude of our swordsmanship. It's prayerful. It's not turning rocks or sitting on couches. It's, it's sober. It's humble. It's submitted and committed in every moment of every day to the strength of the Lord. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus Christ constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, which can never fail. So onward then, ye people, join our happy throng, blend with ours, your voices, in the triumph song, glory, praise and honour under Christ the King, This through countless ages, men, women, and angels sing. We stand as soldiers of God. We stand in the strength of the Lord. We stand against the schemes of the devil. And we stand in the whole armour of God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Teaching Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you would like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.